continue with our series through the book of Ephesians this morning. We shall be considering verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 4. But before that, I'll read the chapter, make a prayer, and then we shall go on. Ephesians chapter 4. Please give attention to the public reading of his word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to, me to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love now this i say and testify in the lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as, if, as, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
let us go to God for help. Father, we come to you this morning asking you that you may strengthen our inner man so that we might receive your word. Teach us, Lord, your ways. Guide us, Lord, into your truth. We pray that you may expose our sin, our weaknesses, our ignorance. We pray by the by the working of the Holy Spirit, you may sanctify us by your, by your truth. We pray that you may help me to be faithful to your word. Grant my hearers as well to be faithful to the hearing of your word. We pray that you may be with us, Lord, and keep us away from the distractions that are around us. These things we pray in Jesus, Christ, in Jesus name. Amen. I guess many of us here like receiving gifts and the response to that gift should be an appreciation, a thank you. And gifts and presents can be our administration of our love for someone. Sometimes the gift can be for the purpose of making someone's life easier and convenient. The passage before us this morning has to do with gifts that Christ has given to his church for her growth and maturity. And the gifts here are not only a token of love. The gifts here are given by Christ to make his church grow and to mature. So if you have your Bibles, the focus of the message this morning will be in verse 11. The focus will be in verse 11 and, uh, and the sermon is titled, The Ascended Christ Gives Ministry Gifts to the Church. The Ascended Christ Gives Ministry Gifts to the Church. The context of this passage is in reference to Psalm 68 verse 18, which we looked at last, last, last time. And Paul has taken the expressions in Psalm 68 verse 18 and is building on his arguments from that psalm. And last time we looked at, at, we looked at Christ ascended and today we are going to look at what he gave, the gifts that he has given to his church. Christ descended and he has ascended giving gifts to the church. And these gifts, they are not simply gifts. They are ministries and they are people. People who are endowed with gifts. Christ has not only established these offices, but Christ calls, equips, prepares, and sends ministers of the word. The first thing you notice in verse 11 is that this list is not exhaustive. Deacons are not mentioned in that list. This list is only indicative. It is, it is focused. It says verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. The gifts that are mentioned here are designed to help the church to grow and to mature. It is not an exhaustive list. Another thing that is important for your consideration is that there will be an overlap here. For instance, you'll find that apostles did all the other descriptions that are there. The apostles, some of them were apostles as well as prophets. The apostles did the work of evangelists. The apostles, were, some of them were shepherds, shepherd teachers. And so Christ has not established these offices so that people can just fit in and be, and be pastors, for instance. Christ 
has qualified people who are insufficient to be fit for these offices. Is the one who equips, is the one who prepares, is the one who sends men to be ministers of the word of God. Let me take you back a bit from verse 7 to 10, which we considered last week. Uh, it continues with the same theme, the theme of Christian unity. This whole chapter from verse 1 to 17 is a wonderful theme on the unity of the true church of Jesus Christ. And we are diligently called to preserve the unity of the body, of the spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says that we are to take great pains to preserve, protect, and promote the unity of the body of Christ. Because this is the unity that the Spirit of God has created in the hearts of God's people in the body of Christ. Verse 4 and 6, as we considered, tells us the foundation of this unity. This unity is grounded in Trinitarian Christian faith. This unity is founded in one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And we are reminded what we have in common as Christians. Everything there is one. That is why we are united. That is why we are seated here this morning. But he also wanted to tell us that this unity is not uniformity. We saw that in verse 7. God is diverse in his distribution of the gifts. That yes, we are one, but we are different. People are endowed with different gifts, but it is the same spirit. It is the same Lord. It is the same faith. It is the same baptism. It is the same body. And so verse 7 describes for us unity in diversity. And so every Christian, if you're a Christian here today, you've received a gift from the ascended Lord. These are spirit-enabled gifts that, you that, that, that should help you to grow and to, uh, and to mature in your faith and also for the good of others. These gifts are given sovereignly by God. We are not born with it. We were infused with them after our salvation. And those gifts are not for your good only, but for the good of others. The gift is unique. No two gifts are alike. And those gifts have come to us with a great cost. The life of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He died, he descended, he died, he resurrected and ascended so that you may be given these gifts for the preservation of your faith and the strengthening of Christians. God has chosen human agents to be the means of taking forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has rescued us because at one time, we were enemies of God. We were hostile to Him. And God brought forth salvation in us, changed our hearts, and He distributed different abilities to us because He wants, us, he wants to use us in different ways. And God distributes these abilities in relation to our calling so that the body of Christ has different functions. We have different responsibility, but you can function and serve one another. And these gifts, they're not found in men for the glory of men. These gifts are there for the glory of the giver. And so what exactly are these gifts of the ascended Lord? We see what we have in verse 11. These gifts have to do with the offices of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherd teachers 
it's important to make biblical distinctions here and identifications. These gifts can be divided into two. There are permanent gifts and there are temporary gifts. The permanent gifts were the foundational gifts that were given in the early church. But the temporary but, but the sorry, the, the, the temporary gifts were the gifts that were given in the early church. The permanent gifts are the enduring gifts throughout the history of the church. And here we are given four gifts given to the church. We need to consider very keenly here that there are gifts that are ordinary, that were temporal, there are gifts that were permanent. There are gifts that are foundational, there are gifts that are temporary. And the first one is the office of an apostle. We have the office of an apostle. We see that the apostles are listed first, and there's a reason. You see, the apostles had a primary role in the church. They were, the, they were of first importance to the church. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and he says, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, he says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So who is an apostle? What is the identity of an apostle? Will you be able to recognize one today? You see, apostles in the early church had a responsibility that went beyond that of a pastor. Apostles were in charge of many churches. And when reading through the New Testament, there are three distinguishing marks of an apostle. There are three distinguishing marks of an apostle. The first one, a true apostle, is one who is a witness of the resurrection. That's the first point under the topic of apostles. A true apostle is the one who is a witness of the resurrection. An apostle is a man who has seen the risen Lord. In Acts chapter 1, we have the apostles. If you could turn there to Acts chapter 1 verse 21. Acts chapter 1 verse 21. So the apostles are going to uh, replace the position of Judas Iscariot who committed suicide. And we're told in Acts 1.21 So one of the men who have accompanied us sorry, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus and Matthias. You see here that they're going to appoint an apostle to replace Judas and the qualifications of an apostle are mentioned there. This person must have accompanied Jesus all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and, and out among us. And this person must have been a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that is one of the qualifications. And this is very important. This is very essential. They must have seen the risen Lord. An apostle was called to be a witness of the resurrection. And this is important because the issue of apostleship came into question by the Corinthians. And Paul's response to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 is, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Paul is asking the Corinthians, 
who are questioning his apostleship. And he tells them, have I not seen the risen Lord? Obviously, there are people in Corinth who are claiming to be apostles. Others are claiming to be super apostles. Paul was telling them, have I not any credentials? Have I not seen the risen Lord? You see, Paul saw the Lord Jesus Christ on the, ra- on the road to Damascus. It was a real appearance of the risen Lord. Our Lord descended from heaven to earth to appear to Paul so that Paul could fulfill his apostolic qualification. In another instance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 to 8, that Christ appeared to him. He says, Christ, then he appeared to James, then to all apostles, last of all, as to the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So the first qualification we see there is that they must have been witnesses to Christ's resurrection. Paul says, Christ appeared last to me. And then secondly, an apostle, they were an infallible spokesman of the word of God. They were infallible. Meaning they could not make a mistake. They, they could not make a mistake. They received the true divine revelation and they brought God's word to people. The apostles were men vested with the authority of God. They spoke under the divine inspiration of God. Every word was breathed out from the mouth of God. In 1 Corinthians 14 verse 37, Paul says, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. You see, God used the apostles in the early church to convey his message. And the writing of an apostle was binding. Paul is telling the Corinthians that the things I'm writing to you, they're not my opinions. They're not my views. Those things are the very word of God. They are a command from God. So you cannot look at Paul's writing and say, there is opinions, that it was his idea. Paul tells the Corinthians that they are a command from God so that apostles were spokesmen of God. They were infallible. Obviously, the apostles were not infallible in their lifestyle. I'm not saying they were perfect people. They had their own sins and struggles in their lifestyle. They were human beings like us, creatures of the dust. They committed sin just like you and me. But when they stood to speak the word of God, they were infallible. God used them to communicate his infallible truth to the church. Peter says, holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And you see, one of the qualifications to approve whether a book in the New Testament was a canon, was an inspired word of God, was that it must have had apostolic authority. The book must have been written by an apostle or the teachings must have been derived from the apostle. So apostolic authority was the test of canonicity. And so an apostle alone could speak infallibly with divine authority. And they must have been eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And then thirdly, an apostle was directly commissioned by the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They were directly commissioned by the Lord himself. The apostles were directly called and commissioned by God. These apostles were people who were not self-appointed. They were not appointed by other men. They were not set apart by a church or a group of a denomination. They were directly called and commissioned by the Lord. Paul had to exercise this to the Galatians. And the context of Galatians is people are, are, are attacking the church. People are attacking the gospel. People are, are attacking Paul. And Paul had to defend his apostleship in Galatians chapter 1 verse 1. Please turn to Galatians chapter 1 verse 1. Uh, just before Ephesians. 
Listen to how Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sostinas. So he was called, not by the will of man. Paul says, I was called an apostle by the will of God. And here in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1, listen to what he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. It was not by the will of some church. It was not self-appointment. They were appointed by God. The apostles were called and directly commissioned with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a clear qualification in the Bible on the appointment of an elder and deacons. But you read in the New Testament, there's no qualification of an apostle in the church. That's why we say the office has ceased. Remember in Acts chapter 12, when James is martyred by Herod, the early church does not raise any successor to fill his shoes. There's no such thing as an apostolic succession. The apostolic ministry was a temporary ministry. And its continuation was never intended by the Lord. Puritan John Owen rightly concluded, he says, I quote, Where no command, rule, or authority, no directions are given for the calling of an officer, there that office must cease as that of apostles, who could not be called but by Jesus Christ. You see, you have qualifications of elders and deacons in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1, but now in Scripture, do we find any qualifications for our apostles? The apostolic ministry ceased with original apostles. So can there be apostles today? Can there be people who have seen the risen Lord, who have been commissioned directly by Jesus Christ? Can these people speak infallibly about the word of God? You see, brethren, the word of God, the canons have been closed. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God speaks to us today through his son. And the Bible is referred to as the word of Christ. God speaks to us through his word. And even in the, uh, in the first century, we have the church fathers, and none of them, none of them referred to themselves as apostles. Apostles were unique, special kind of people. And then secondly, Christ has given to the church, he says, and he gave. The secondly, he gave the prophets. So are there modern day prophets? Is God still giving prophecy today? Are those who claim to be prophets to be believed? Does God still reveal himself through dreams and visions? I see from Hebrews 1, that was long ago. But in these last times, he reveals himself through Jesus Christ. And so how can a prophet be identified in scripture? The first point is, the prophets were the mouthpiece of God. The prophets were the mouthpiece of God. You look at the Old Testament, and you soon discover that there was genuine prophecy going on. In other words, a prophet was a mouthpiece of God. He conveyed infallible revelation of God to God's people. 
This can be seen in Exodus chapter 7 verse 1. I'll read Exodus chapter 7 verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. So when Moses stood before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he was literally standing in the place of God. So what God said to Moses, Moses said. The voice behind the voice of Moses was the voice of the eternal throne. Moses was to be an infallible communicator. And this is true not only of Moses, but genuine prophets in the Old Testament. When they stood up to minister to the people, there was no hesitation. There was no uncertainty in what they spoke. They would not say, I feel like the Lord is telling me. But it was what? Thus says the Lord. It was what? The word of the Lord came to me. It was sure. It was certain. Those were the introductory comments that we see over and over again in the Old Testament. You may be wondering, how can fallible men communicate the infallible truth of God? Bible tells us it is only through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is through the guidance, the direction of the Holy Spirit that men are carried along to speak the word of God. Time and time again, we read in the scriptures how the Spirit of God came up and the prophets began to prophesy. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved, literally. They were carried along. So they were infallible communicators of God's word. Then secondly, true, pro true, true prophecy consists of foretelling and forthtelling. True prophecy consists of foretelling and forthtelling. In other words, they not only spoke God's word, but they also predicted future events. And this prediction is seen everywhere. You cannot find a prophetic book in the Old Testament that does not contain this element of foretelling and forthtelling. By the Spirit of God, they were able to see things hundreds of years. They were able to foretell the birth of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection with concise accuracy. Then thirdly, their prophecy had to be tested. Their prophecy had to be tested. It's not, it's not an issue of what we have today. People claiming to be prophets and people saying that their prophecy is 70% accurate or 90% accurate. What we have in the Bible is concise 100% accuracy. There's no inaccuracy. And any time there was in inaccuracy, we see from scripture that prophet had to be condemned. That prophet had to be ejected from the people. That prophet had to be put to death. This was serious business so that people could not mess about. It was a life and death situation. Deuteronomy 18.22 says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not to be afraid of him. If a, prof if a person prophesied in error, it was a serious crime. crime. That person was guilty of what? Blasphemy. Because he prophesied in the name of God. Such a person was guilty of misleading and deceiving the people of God. And they were put to death. There could only be one punishment for such a crime. Death. All prophecies had to be tested. And this is an essential characteristic of Old Testament prophecy. The New Testament prophecy has not changed from the Old Testament. It is still inspirational. It is still revelatory. The situation we find 
ourselves today with the so-called prophets is one of chaos and complete confusion. It's interesting that I've not heard of any prophet who prophesied about the COVID-19. And when COVID-19 struck, all of them were in hiding just like us. They could not provide solution to it. People stand before the pulpit and they say that they are genuine prophets of God and they speak errors and mistakes. It is false. Such prophets should not be entertained. Such people are misrepresenting God. Such people are deceivers. This office has also ceased. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. This office is no longer in existence. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. This is an additional confirmation here. It says, read from verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. These ministries, the ministry of apostles and prophets, were set down by God as foundational ministries for the Christian church. And once the foundation is laid, it is once and for all. You don't keep laying foundation over and over again. And therefore the ministry of prophets and apostles have ceased. However, there's one place where these two ministries continue today. It is here in the Bible. Here we have the continuing ministry of apostles and prophets. And before we had the preaching, we sang how firm a foundation, this sense of the Lord, is laid for your faith in God's excellent word. What more can be said than to you God has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. What more can be said than what has been said in the scriptures? That the firm foundation has been laid. And so the prophets served as the foundation to the church. So that God is no longer giving a new revelation. His revelation is complete. It's through the scripture. God has completed giving his revelation and these offices are no longer in existence. And so these were foundational ministries. They were temporary ministries. God used these people to speak his inspired word. The final revelation has come to us. The final revelation has come through Jesus Christ. There's a parallel here between the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament. Both of them spoke infallibly. Both of them were organs of divine revelation. A prophet even in the New Testament from 1 Corinthians 14.29, they had a role of teaching. They had a role of exhortation and so on. But you have to remember that in 1 Corinthians, during the time in 1 Corinthians, the canons had not been put together. So that the church depended on prophets for them to receive divine revelation. They did not have the word of God. So that prophets were relevant in the early church. So the church is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. They are vehicles of divine revelation. And they were foundational to the church. They do not have successors. They already are foundations. We cannot tamper with them. However, I could say that there are those who have been given subsidiary gift. It is not a direct revelation of God, but rather there are people who have amazing, peculiar insight 
into the word of God and even into society. They are able to diagonize and apply the word of God in ways beyond the teaching ministry of the church. There are people who have peculiar insight into the church and into the world. But we'll say, those people do not have direct revelation of God, but God has gifted that, them in that, with that subsidiary gift. They are able to tell, for instance, the direction of the church 20 years from now. But what they have is not infallible. They are prone to error as well. But God has given them a peculiar insight. And then thirdly, we have another office given to us. It is the office of the evangelist. The noun evangelist is only used three times in the New Testament. One in Acts chapter 21, and the other one is in 2 Timothy. If you could turn there, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. So it's used in Ephesians, Acts, and in Timothy. Those are the three times this phrase is used. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. As for you, Paul is, sorry, Paul is telling Timothy, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The rest of the time, this term is used in the New Testament. It is used as a verb. It is used in terms of doing evangelism. And the work of the evangelist fits the description of the work of a missionary. The work of an evangelist is the work of a missionary. And then secondly, it's the work of a church planter. You can use the example of Paul. He goes to, to Corinth, he preaches the gospel, and he plants a church. So the gospel is preached in view of planting a church. This office of an evangelist should be gospel-centered with a view of planting a church. An evangelist was important in taking the gospel in places where the church has not been established. But this gift is not restricted only to the mission field. It should be done in the context of a local church. See, the church needs the gospel. Why? Because there will always be unconverted people in the assembly of a local church. For instance, we have children. Children who are unconverted. There are people who are unconverted in our midst. It could be. And one of the first responsibilities of the church to the world is to tell the world of their need of salvation through Jesus Christ. Before you receive the good news, you have to see that there is a just and a righteous God in heaven who requires perfection. We are going through the Ten Commandments in the morning, in the Sunday school, and you could just see that in the Ten Commandments, you have a God who is perfect, who says, you shall not steal, you shall not murder, you shall keep the Sabbath, you shall not covet your neighbor's property. You have a God who is perfect. And you have to see that I am imperfect. I have broken the law. The law of God is whole. So that when you break one command, you have broken the whole commandment. And every one of us here seated has broken the law of God. We have defied God. We have mocked him. We have ridiculed him. We have held his law in contempt. And we need the gospel as Christians. We need to go to Christ. We need to repent of our sins. The work of an evangelist should be done in the context of a church and should be done outside the context of the church. And I hope that the gospel is precious to you. That you see yourself as rotten, as filthy, as deserving hell because you've broken the law of God.
And the more you see yourself that way, the more joy you have in Christ Jesus that he could love a dreadful sinner like me. That he could come here on earth, descend here on earth, die on the cross in my place, ascend and give me gifts. And the more we see ourselves as sinners, the more Christ is precious to us. This is a ministry, the ministry of evangelists. We see that in the in the New Testament, there are people gifted in this way. There are people, even today, who are missionaries, who are itinerant pastors. But all ministry should happen in the context of a church. All those who go out sent as missionaries, church planters, they should be serving under the oversight of pastors of the local church. They should, should, they're supposed to be approved by the church before they go out to serve in the ministries. Also, as we interact with this word, evangelist, it's only used three times. There's greater emphasis in the New Testament on the word evangelism. And the ministry of evangelism is never, is never a sole responsibility of an office. The ministry of evangelism is responsibility of all Christians. And evangelism is not about securing results. It's about preaching the gospel. The result belongs to God. God alone can convert the hearts of men. And so we have the ministry of the evangelist. And there's a way this ministry has changed. Because it's given to all Christians. All Christians, uh, regardless of your occupation, you're called to preach the gospel. And then, thirdly and lastly, we have the office of the shepherd teachers. It says, and the shepherds and teachers. And so the shepherd or the pastor there is a functional word. And the idea here is the pastors and the teachers are the same individual. It reads in the original Greek, pastor teachers. And so it's not referring to two different peoples, people, but one individual whom it, is, whom it combines with these two gifts, the gift of pastoring and the gift of a teacher. So the word pastor is a shepherd. The first teacher is an individual whom Christ has gifted to become spiritual parents. Pastors are also referred in the New Testament with other terms like elders, overseers, pastors. They are all the same office. They are not different people. The term elder has to do with their dignity of the office. The term overseer has to do with exercising oversight. They are all functions of a pastor. They are all functions of an elder. The elder or the pastor is called to be a servant leader among the flock of God. He's the one leading in service. The number of things we need to understand first, the nature of this office. Pastors are not super saints. They're not some kind of super spiritual beings who exist in this world. Every pastor is made from the same exact stuff that you're made of. We are all creatures of dust. We are all men. It's only that we are endowed by the gifts of God and God has qualified us according to Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. Those are character qualities and gifts required to serve as an elder or a pastor. But even when it comes to the requirements, there's not one single pastor who can say that they have achieved all the qualifications impeccably. So that a pastor is not some kind of an exalted being. But on the other hand, they must meet biblical requirements. They are ordinary men called to an extraordinary office. They are servant leaders. 
and they're supposed to model their leadership after the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that TRBC has a senior pastor. And it's not me and it's not Pastor Eric. The senior pastor is Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. The rest of us are under shepherds. Jesus says he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for all. And we are to model our lives after Jesus Christ. He humbled himself to become an example for all of us. Leaders are called to be examples. Paul says, we do not preach ourselves. We preach Christ. The idea of a pastor is to be a servant leader. And it's supposed to lead, govern, and exercise oversight. Although we disapprove the elevation and the exaltation of ordinary men in the church, we must acknowledge that God has, God has gifted men to the church to govern and exercise oversight. When you read in the New Testament, there are elements that you don't see democracy exercised. You see the sovereign rule of Christ exercised through the pastors. And then secondly, the, so the pastors are to be are to govern, are to lead, and to exercise oversight. And then secondly, the pastors are to take care, give counsel, disciple, and discipline the flock of God. The Bible says if a man cannot take care of his household, how can he manage the church of God? The whole idea of pastoral ministry is to take care, is to give counsel, is to disciple, is to discipline. It should be the one taking care of the church with tenderness. The tenderness of a mother and the firmness of a father. And the picture that we see in scripture is totally different with what we see out here. Instead of having pastors or elders who are servants, you have CEOs over an organization. And you have a church that is run by staff, people who are employed there. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ has given his servants to serve as shepherds, to take care of the sheep. When one of the sheep goes astray, the shepherd is to leave the other 99 and to go and find the lost one. The pastor must offer rebuke. They must offer encouragement. They must take care of the flock of God. They must shepherd the church of Christ. And then lastly, they are to protect, restore, and teach. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. This is the last passage we're going to look at. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to take care of the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So Paul is writing here to the Ephesian elders. The first aspect is they ought to take care of themselves. Only then are they, are they able to take care of all the flock, not some of the flock, not many of the flock, all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. Notice the other phrase used there, overseer, in reference to elders. It's talking about their exercise of oversight to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Then also, as I've said, they are to protect, 
Notice verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I do not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. The work of the pastor is to protect the sheep against false teachers. Paul says there that there are fierce wolves who are coming among you. And it's even interesting. He's speaking about elders and he's telling that these fierce wolves may even come within the eldership, within the leadership of the church. And he says they're not even going to spare the flock. He says they are supposed to be alert. The work of the pastor is to protect the flock of God from false doctrine, false teachers, false leaders. That's why they must take care of themselves. They must take care of the, of the flock. That's why it's vitally important for the elders to work in unity. It's not only to protect themselves, but also to protect the flock of God. And the work of the pastor is to teach. It is to instruct the word of God. It is to apply the word of God in the power of the spirit. See, teaching is imparting biblical doctrine and biblical living. Right teaching and right conduct is the goal of all teaching. Our purpose is not to stand here every Sunday and to impart information to you. Our job is to instruct you in the word of God and apply the word of God in your life. That's why there is a constant bombardment in the episodes on the teaching ministry of a pastor. This is a great emphasis on them to teach the word of God, to preach the word of God. Paul tells Timothy, before I come, occupy yourself with what? The reading of the scriptures, the teaching of the scriptures, exhortation, teaching. The role of the pastor is to teach the word of God. Pastors and ought to be to faithfully handle the word of truth. Because that's the only thing that will change your life. The word of God is the supreme authority. It is foundational to your sanctification, to your growth, to your salvation. The word of God reproves, corrects, rebukes. And so the word of God is to be preached. It needs to be applied. The preacher the pastor must live out the word of God in their lives so that they can be an example to others. And it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit are we able to do this. And Christ loves his church. And the will of his church, the will of Christ is that the church will grow. That the gifts that he has given us might be used for the good of one another, for the strengthening of the saints. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this afternoon. Thank you that you have loved us in Christ, died on the cross for our sins. We thank you that we are one with you because we are one with Christ. And thank you that he ascended and he gave gifts to the church. We pray, Father, that we may be strengthened through the gifts that you've given us. We pray that your people may be established in the faith and much good may come through the ministry of your word. We pray that you may grant repentance and faith to those who are still lost, those who do not know you, that Christ may be Lord and Savior of their lives. These things we pray in Jesus' name.